When you think of Arizona, the images and people that come to mind are probably pretty stereotypical. Wide desert vistas and mountains, cactus and clear skies, cowboys and native tribes, Latinos and snowbirds, most of which have lived here for generations. What you probably don't think of is the rich history of African Americans who also settled this state. At present, the Black population makes up 5.4% of Arizona's census. That might not seem like much, but African Americans are the third largest demographic in our state. When looking at Phoenix alone, the percentage jumps up to 7.4% of the population identifying as Black or African American. The Arizona Republic has found that 800,000 people have moved to the valley since 2010, and about 70,000 of those are African Americans. And that expansion hasn't stopped, not even with the pandemic. Welcome to Valley 101 a podcast by the Arizona Republic and azcentral.com. Each week, we delve into questions about our capital city and beyond. I'm producer Kaylee Monahan. This episode is part one of our look at African-American representation at the Phoenix City Council. We're starting with two wins that have made history. Then, in episode two, we'll go back in time to learn more about the first Black man to sit on the city's council. Today, April 17th, 2023, two Black representatives will be sworn into the Phoenix City Council. It's the first time this governmental body has ever had two Black council members at the same time. And it's been about a decade since the council has even had one Black member. So today, we're having the new council members on Valley 101. Keisha Hodge Washington, a lawyer by trade, is representing District 8, which was historically and still is diversely populated with many people of color. She is the first Black woman to ever sit on the Phoenix City Council. Kevin Robinson is a retired Phoenix police officer and a professor at Arizona State School of Criminology and Criminal Justice. He is now representing District 6 after Sal DeCicio's term came to an end. Both council members have established deep roots in the Valley. We moved to Phoenix in 1974. My dad was an Air Force guy. Prior to Phoenix, we lived in Albuquerque, New Mexico, before that, Manchester, New Hampshire, before that, the Philippines, before that, D.C. You know, it goes on and on all the way back to Italy, then New York, Syracuse, New York. So we were all over the place. And Phoenix became home. This is where my dad retired. And we decided, you know, my folks used to say, you don't have, you don't have to shovel sunshine. I graduated in 1977. We were the second four-year class to graduate from Trevor Brown High School at the time. Then Trevor Brown was the newest high school in the Phoenix Union High School District. 
I'm originally from the U.S. Virgin Islands. Um, I'm from the small island of St. Thomas. I moved here in 1999 to go to grad school. Um, I graduated for Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law, class of 2002. Um, I fell in love with Phoenix, and I what was supposed to be a three-year plan turned into a 21 and counting journey. Um, actually, I lived. I moved downtown. I lived on. 13th Avenue and Van Buren um, <laughs> back in 2002, if you can imagine what that looked like. ASU would, had not yet come to downtown. I was working at the Arizona Court of Appeals, clerking for, at that time, Judge Cecil B. Patterson. And what drew me to Phoenix was the opportunities. The opportunity for um, home ownership, the opportunity for um, career development, um, just economic development. I saw the growth in Phoenix happen in, in that short period of time that I had been here. So I was here about four or five years before I finally said, OK, here is home. And the amount of growth that I saw was just tremendous. I saw all the companies that were coming into Phoenix. And I said, you know what? I kind of want to be a part of this. It, it's a big city with a small town feel. And I just actually just grew on me opportunity after opportunity. And here I am. I sat down with the council members, along with our Phoenix reporter, Taylor Seeley, to reflect on their wins and discuss their experiences on the campaign trail. Today's episode will have a slightly different feel than our previous Valley 101s. And to you longtime listeners, you might recognize Taylor from her appearances as a producer on Valley 101 a few years ago. She led our roundtable discussion. Keisha Hodge-Washington and Kevin Robinson, hello. Congratulations on your win, and thank you for coming on Valley 101. No problem. Uh, my pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Keisha, you will be representing South Phoenix and parts of downtown. Kevin, you've got the Sunny Slope area, Arcadia, the Biltmore area, and Ahwatukee. Keisha, your district is one that has a history of cultivating Black leaders, in large part because historical segregation and federal redlining policies force Black people to this part of Phoenix. So on one hand, you're continuing the legacy of Black leadership in South Phoenix, but on the other hand, you're celebrating something new. You are the first Black woman. What do you think about that? I have a lot of emotions around that. One being, it's kind of surprising that after 109 years, Phoenix has finally seen a representation that looks like me, African-American woman, considering that we are, I think, a significant portion of the population. So it is inspiring in that context. But it's also humbling also to think that it's been 109 years. Kevin, your story in District 6 is different. You are the first Black person who doesn't live in South Phoenix to join city council. What do you think of the historical significance? You know, I realize there is significance there. That's number one. And I didn't give it a whole lot of thought throughout the campaign, but it would be raised. The issue would be raised with me occasionally, and that would give me pause for concern. And the concern was more about me. It was like, you know, I need to do this. I wanted to do it. I wanted to be successful for all the right reasons because I think it then signals that someone who looks like me can be successful anywhere in the city. And that then became the issue that I was most concerned about. I want to ask you both about your campaigns. What do you think made you successful in connecting with the electorate? And how, if at all, did race factor into that? The question of whether or not race factored into my campaign, it, you know, I, I would be lying to you and to myself if I said, no, it did not. It did. What I look like, you know, that was an issue because I was out knocking on doors. You know, we knocked on well over 6,000 doors personally. And 
in some neighborhoods where there may not be black families, there, you know, there may be a question about who is this person at my door. So I was always very much aware of that. So I tried not to make it an issue. I think what made me successful, quite honestly, is that I had a background that people were comfortable with, that people appreciated. And that was in law enforcement for 36 years because I would find I would knock on folks' doors and people would a lot of times stand behind the security door and I'd introduce myself, explain I was running for Phoenix City Council, that I spent 36 and a half years with the Phoenix Police Department. And the minute I mentioned that, more often than not, folks would then unlock that security door, they'd step outside or they'd ask me to come in. That was always the key that I found in my campaign, the mentioning of the fact that for 36 years, I served the citizens of Phoenix as a police officer. Folks then, I think, became a little bit more comfortable because of that background. How did you feel about that? I mean, the fact that it, it isn't until you mention police, they then changed kind of the demeanor? It was the reality. It, it just was. It was just the reality, folks. Some folks, it wasn't an issue. Please don't, don't think that I'm saying this was the case and every single door that I knocked on that wasn't. You know, a lot of doors, people opened up, stepped outside, asked me to step in, whatever it was, without even mentioning the part about law enforcement. But what I did find is once I mentioned law enforcement, a lot of doors would open up. People seemed to be a little bit more comfortable. That's just the reality. What I tried to do then was beyond law enforcement, talk about what I thought were my attributes to being an effective city council person and why I would represent them better than, at one point, any of my other seven competitors. And then when it came down to the runoff against just one person, I wanted to make sure they understood who I was and why I was more than capable of delivering for them the type of governance that they deserved. How about with black constituents? You know, you mentioned that in neighborhoods where maybe there weren't a lot of black people, you had this sort of perhaps hesitation. But what about a person who is black and you're also, you know, running. And that, what I found then was, in some cases, keep in mind, there are a lot of cases I do the folks. You know, I, I have lived in Phoenix since 1974. So even though the African-American community, you know, it, it's not as large as some people would think. So it's not hard to know folks. So there is a little bit of connection. Sometimes it's through church, school, you know, my time with the police department, social activities, things that my wife does. So there was a great deal of connectivity there. And in the neighborhoods, be it Nahuatuki or in Arcadia, Biltmore, and even in some north central Phoenix neighborhoods, knock on a door, it would be another African-American come to the door. And routinely, I know you, I know who you are, I know your wife, and that was always a good feeling. It was, you know, nice to have that conversation with folks. And then I always counted on them putting in a good word for me with their neighbors. And they, you know, that was a part of getting out and knocking on doors. So I always took that in, as long as we got along, obviously, you know, I always took that as a positive. So Keisha, what do you think made you successful in connecting with the electorate? And similarly, you know, did race factor in with that? I'll start with what I think helped me a lot. I think it does a lot for my skill set as a lawyer. I find many times politicians talk to individuals instead of listening to individuals. 
And I would simply go to the door and introduce myself, tell them what I think are important, but I want to hear from you. And that simple notion of saying, tell me what's important to you, sparked so many great conversations. It confirmed what I already knew, was the district was very diverse and they had varying needs. And I would not know those varying needs if I didn't talk to them. And a lot of people just wanted to be heard and feel like government represents them. And for me, I think my skill set as a lawyer, I, in order to represent an, a client, I have to get to know their story, get to know them. So I, I use that same process and thought pattern in, in interacting with constituents leading up to a campaign. Um, like Kevin, I knocked on thousands of doors. My shoes are nice and worn, but I have a good, I think a good a good representation of what I think the community wants. I still don't, of course, I won't close my ears now, but I know kind of what the direction is that the city should be going in to please the people in my in my district, as well as I know how and who to come back to to figure out important issues, who I should be listening to, and whether or not race took a factor. I think to a certain extent, there was some energy behind the notion. Um, like you mentioned, District 8 has historically been a, a seat that was represented by an African-American representative. So there was some energy behind that. But if you look at the numbers, we know that could not be the only um, demographic that I would have to coalesce in order to, to be successful. So although I did recognize that I might have been consistent because it's true to who I am, that I'm representing the entirety of the district, it does not matter the demographic or the subsegment. On the campaign trail, you faced some pointed critiques about your career. You had said people were calling you a disconnected or removed person from the working class. What do you think is flawed about those attacks? Pick one. Um, I don't think I am removed at all. I think some of the criticism that was launched against me were flawed for a number of reasons. To say I'm removed from the working class is completely um, incorrect. I am the product of two of the hardest working people you ever meet in your life. My parents worked many jobs to provide for us. I'm the middle child. I have an older brother and a younger sister. And my parents instilled in us the value of hard work, and they instilled in us the value of an education. And, and they are of the belief that every generation should be better than the one that came before them. So they specifically laid out and made sacrifices so that I could have a better life. But I recognize those. Like I went to law school, and I graduated without significant student loan debts because of my parents' sacrifice. My parents worked and ensured they didn't want us to be saddled with that. But to say that I'm because I'm reaping the benefits of people who have worked before me, to say that I am removed from that experience is totally, in, you know, it's, uh, it's, it, it, it showed that they didn't take any time to get to know me. They just made some assumptions based on what I do for a living. Like I said on the campaign trail, I'm not going to disrespect my parents' legacy by undermining their sacrifices to make other people feel comfortable. I believe that I am a testament. I'm living what the American dream is supposed to be, where people can work and provide for their families something better and different than what they had. And that's why I ran for city council, because I don't want to see that dream go further and further away for the masses. Our opinion columnist, Greg Moore, he was talking about that part of the critiques and the campaigning, and he had you know, really condemned it, saying it was essentially saying that you weren't black enough. And I was wondering if that's how you felt about it. That's exactly how I felt about it. I felt like we have created some stereotypes that in order for us to be African-American, we must live a certain way, carry ourselves a certain way, speak a certain way. But at the end of the day, I am African-American. I am black no matter. When I go to the store, no one asks me what my college education is. They don't ask me what I do for a living. They look at me as a black woman. And I think 
I agree with the response. It was like they're trying to say I wasn't black enough because I took it in a derogatory manner. And I but I like I said, I, I was firm on saying I'm not going to, to sympathize on that. One of the most memorable experiences that I had while on this campaign trail, I did not shy away from using my first name. And for me, that was very important in the legal field. When I first started, a lot of people told me to use my first initial and my middle name because Keisha quickly designates that I'm an African-American woman. And some people were not as receptive. I graduated from law school in 2002, and that may not seem like a long time ago, but you didn't see a lot of people that look like me in law firms. So when I decided to run, I was like, let's be clear who I am. I am Keisha for Phoenix. And plus, my name is kind of long. But when I went to an event, a young lady ran up. She was probably about seven or eight. She was like, who's Keisha? And I'm, I'm Keisha. She's like, I'm Keisha too. And it, it was to see her face. It reaffirmed why I did what I did intentionally, used to my name. Because people need to see that you can be black woman, you can be a black person. And, and there are many, there is no specific spear on how, where we should be and how we need to carry ourselves. And that's one of my favorite moments. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Kevin, for you, the attacks were more pointed at your history with the Phoenix Police Department. You worked there for 36 years, working your way up from patrol officer to assistant police chief. People believe you are going to be used to put a happy face on the injustices and mistreatment from the department. And some people's concern is that statement that all is well in the police department coming from a black man is going to be more believable, which they think is wrong. What do you think about that? Well, first of all, you know, I, I really appreciate it listening to Keisha for the last couple of minutes because everything she has said is I, I've been black all my life. I, I think that's the easiest way to explain that. And she was spot on for everything for all the right reasons. The criticisms I've received about my long standing with the police department that I would be, you know, I would put a, a happy face on things done by the police department. Clearly, things like that are coming from folks who do not know me, who do not know my history. I am someone who I believe was a very good police officer for 36 and a half years. The one thing I never wanted to be around, never tolerated, my history shows this, never tolerated anyone who was a bad police officer, anybody who treated someone differently than they should have been treated. I learned a long time ago that when you look at people, when you deal with folks as a police officer, the one thing you never, ever, ever take away from them is their self-respect. You treat people in the manner in which they should be treated. The minute you take their self-respect away from them, you're doing a lot of different things, but you're going to cause a fight. I knew that. I've learned that a long time ago, but I'm getting off track a little bit. The criticism that people will levy against me, they don't know, like I said, my background. They don't know that for 13 years, I was the chairperson of the Disciplinary Review Board for the Phoenix Police Department. I recommended more terminations than anyone in the history of the Phoenix Police Department. It's not something I'm proud of, but the Disciplinary Review Board chairperson, anybody who got in trouble, police officer, anybody within the Phoenix Police Department at any rank, any position, sworn and non-sworn, and if the infraction was serious enough, it would come before the Disciplinary Review Board. Our recommendation could be termination, it could be demotion, or it could be suspension. And I didn't tolerate anyone who, from a law enforcement, from the sworn side of the house, anyone who did not live up to their oath of office. The oath meant everything to me. 
It should mean everything to every police officer. You don't abuse people. You don't treat people poorly. You don't do those things. When someone did and it was investigated and would come before the board, I never made any qualms about terminating them from the police department. I also sit on the Arizona Police Officer Standards and Training Board, which provides oversight for every single law enforcement officer in the state of Arizona. We review disciplinary actions taken by police departments or any issues that arise to the board itself. We will, with regularity, and go and check the records and stuff. Anybody who violates their oath of office, anybody who goes outside of doing anything that they shouldn't be doing as a police officer, anyone behaves in such a manner, they abuse people, anything along those lines, I will vote to revoke their certification immediately, meaning they cannot be a police officer, not just in the state of Arizona, but anywhere in the United States. And lastly, I I sit on the Arizona Judicial Council, which has oversight, administrative oversight over all the courts in the entire state. And I was a large force in a large portion of the force where we moved toward dealing with no-knock search warrants. This is now almost, almost a year and a half, almost two years old now, where in the state of Arizona, Arizona Judicial Council pushed out an administrative order to every judge in the state of Arizona who may sign off on a search warrant. If it's a no-knock search warrant, they're going to ask a lot more questions now than they've ever before. So what it really comes down to, and I was falling back on Breonna Taylor, that we know what happened there. And if you study that, you look at it at all, there were only a couple people inside of that police department that were aware that that unit was asking for a no-knock search warrant. You can't do that. You need to push that responsibility as high up in an organization as you can. And I advocate it for, at the very least, the assistant chief position, authorizing a no-knock search warrant. Because that's what I did when I was at the Phoenix Police Department years and years, and in some cases decades before Breonna Taylor, that tragedy occurred. Because I knew from my experience that a no-knock search warrant has the potential to go south in a hurry. You need to get out in front of those things. If there's another way to solve that problem, you look for a way to solve that problem. It doesn't always have to be bashing in a door at 2.30, 3 o'clock, 4 o'clock in the morning because people are startled. They're going to react a certain way. And a lot of times those instances, you know, they end in gunfire. And I think when you can avoid it, you go to do that. Now, that was a very long response to your short answer, but people who are going to think that I'm going to put a happy face on policing, if it's good policing, yes, I will. If it's bad policing, no, I will not. And anybody who knows me knows that to be the case. And that idea that you hit on at the top and at the bottom just now, where you say, you know, anyone who knows me knows that I would not do that. I can only imagine that on your end, it feels dismissive, disrespectful to be painted with a broad stroke, not being seen for who you really are. It is. And I get that. Some people will go down that path. You give them a reason to think otherwise. And that's what, you know, sometimes you have to do. I may not necessarily want to take the time to make sure folks really understand who I am, where I'm coming from, and why I stand on certain things. But sometimes it's necessary. And taking a few more minutes to in some cases, you know, setting the record straight, there's nothing wrong with that. Just chime in real quick. I was I was listening to the conversation, and I think this is part for me where I feel there's a little bit of inequity. Um, I feel like sometimes the police department is treated as different employees of the city. We have no hesitation in saying a city park director did a good job or a city employee did a good job, but there's a added criticism when we say a police officer did a good job. And I think we need to we need to start to balance that out a little bit more. I'm not saying that we should 
as Kevin said, we should turn our eye and say everything is perfect. But I think it is important for us to acknowledge when a good job is done by an officer. They do put their lives on the line and they don't always, and I don't think they're doing it for the credit. I think they're doing it because they genuinely want to do good in our society. And there are some that make mistakes and don't follow the right course of conduct. But I think it's important for us to remember that they are like any other employee. And if you're doing a good job, it's always great to hear from your boss, hey, good job on that one. So I think that we should be cognizant of that too. And I think like a, a, bo- a good boss also says, you're not doing a great job. You need to work on A, B, and C. And I think they should be treated that way as well. Um, so I just wanted to chime in on that because I feel like we don't have this conversation when we're talking about a librarian or we're talking about any other city yeah. employee. And I think we have to remember that they are just individuals trying to do their job as well. So we definitely we don't have that conversation about librarians, about park rangers. I think the reason being a park ranger does a bad job maybe your park looks a little dirty. If an officer does a wrong, a bad job, you could be in danger. You could be hurt. You could be killed. There is an obvious difference in why we don't have those conversations, but I hear you. Yeah, I'm not trying to minimize, and trust me, I'm not trying to minimize. I have, I'm a a lawyer. I have dealt with families that have lost individuals as a result of misconduct by the fire department, the police department, and different roles. I totally get it. I'm just saying that sometimes that we kind of have a responsibility to come back and look at these individuals as individuals. And at the end of the day, they're they're employees. And if you don't feel like you're, I don't know about you, but if I felt like my employer is not valuing who I am and what I bring to the table, I may not want to stay there very much longer. And I think that's just something when we start, and it's, it's, it's part of my commentary on society as a whole. Sometimes we forget to look at individuals for individuals. It kind of goes back to the conversation you're having with Kevin and I, when people looked at us not as individuals, but as part of just simply being African-American. And I think we just need to go back and realize that people are people and we need to start recognizing them for who they are and come back to just general and I, and I just say, we let, I said, I'm just saying we need to just consider that they're employees that are usually just trying to do their best job. And whenever you're dealing with human beings, you're going to have issues, you're going to have instances, and there's going to be things that don't go right. I'm, and with Kevin, I will be right there saying, it, if this isn't right, this is a problem. What is your plan to fix it? And if the plan, if I feel the plan doesn't go far enough, I will... It's funny when people say that I am removed or I don't have an opinion of my own. I am very opinionated. You will get to see that in action, I'm sure. But I will say we have not gone far enough and we need to we need to consider this aspect. So I just wanted to say that because I feel like I get it that when someone has a negative action with police, it could mean life or death. And I do believe that they have a they are held to a higher standard. Well, and I felt like also what was kind of underpinning your your points is also that if they don't feel valued and appreciated, we could lose them. We might not have police officers. Am I correct in kind of taking that from you? Yeah, I mean, I think that's in any situation. If, like I said, in any employment situation where you do not feel like your employer is valuing you or feel like you bring anything to the table, you don't want to go to an environment where you don't feel like someone recognizes your worth. Does that put the public in this sort of, I don't know if impossible is too strong, but this impossible situation where, because if, if we can agree that we need police for safety, mm-hmm. 
you know, does it put us in this impossible situation where if we can agree that we need them, but we also need to speak out, but by speaking out, we risk losing them. Does it put us in a situation where it's like, look, we need them, so just don't say anything? No, that sounds like an abusive relationship, and I would not <laughs> recommend we do that at all. I think that it's simply just acknowledge. I'm, I'm not saying that because we need them that we never say anything wrong about it. We never try to make it better. I just think that given what we've seen historically over the last couple of years, I think it is helpful for them to recognize when we see heroic efforts like what happened in, in Tennessee or any, you know, when someone, when an officer puts their life on the line for their community, it should not be taboo for us to say, good job, officers. Thank you for your service. That's all I'm saying. This is a question that I always think about when covering politics. I'm curious about your take on the importance of city level, town level government versus looking at higher level like the state legislature, uh, congressional, federal. Why is it so important that citizens engage with their cities at the municipal level? One of the things that I found um, the most, I don't want to say sad, but it was very unsettling, is the low turnout for these types of races, specifically in my district. It's, a, in my opinion, it's a district that needs more city resources, needs that attention, and they pay the least amount of attention to it. So how do we change that? One of the things I plan to do is launch what I call Energize 8. It's a listening series and figuring out how we can get more engagement and, and get figure out more. I mean, I, like I said, I started off listening and I want to continue to listen my door is always open, though. I really want to hear from all of our, all citizens. Will we always agree? Chances, no. But I, I'm here to listen. And maybe we can find a middle ground. People should understand, and my guess is they do, that city councils have more of an impact on their lives than representatives in Congress or in the Senate. You know, at the federal level, there are a lot of things going. We hear about it with regularity. But the things that matter to them, my guess is that City councils will have an impact on that. You know, the city of Phoenix has had an inordinate amount of pedestrian deaths and, you know, uh, tra traffic fatalities. That can impact anybody. It could be a friend. It could be a family member. We can do something about that. We really can. You know, we have to change driving habits in the city of Phoenix. Now, that's one of the things that I want to stress as we move forward. City councils have a tendency to have an impact on people's everyday lives more than any other elected official. And I, I think a lot of people recognize that. I, if they don't, I want them to understand that. I want them to understand that the voice that they want to have as how their community grows, how everything happens around them, I think it's important that they engage with their representative at the city council level. Let their voices be heard. Make sure they are letting people know where they stand on, on issues, and hopefully that city council person will continue with that, that message that they voice to them and push it forward for more people to consider. Something else I'm curious about is how you plan to reach out to your community's young people, both those who are able to vote, but even younger Last fall, during the midterms, our politics team spoke with first-time voters, second-time voters, very young voters, to get their take 
on the voting process and how they felt like candidates were engaging with them. So I'm curious to hear how you guys are trying to reach out, be where those young people are, uh, and be accessible to them. How will you make them feel like they're a part of the community? I'll go first on this one. Yeah, actually, that's a part of something that we will roll out in City Council District 6, hopefully the next week or so. We'll talk a lot more about it. And that's where I'm engaging. I have four high schools, public high schools within the council district, two in Ahwatukee and one in Arcadia and one in Central Phoenix, Camelback High School, Arcadia High School, Desert Vista High School, and Mountain Point High School. And um, I'm reaching out to all four schools. I have an idea of a program or a project we will have in District 6 to engage their students. So I think it's important. You know, I want students to be more involved. As Keisha was saying, talking about the low turnout rate, I want students to understand the power that they have. We're seeing that a little bit in Tennessee these days. You know, students are truly making their voices heard, you know, when it comes to gun violence. And I think smart politicians, politicians who want to hold on to their jobs, better start listening because those folks are going to come out. Those young people are going to come out and they're going to vote. They're going to vote in numbers we have never seen before. And a lot of people are going to be standing around trying to figure out what happened. What they can do is listen. Listen to what they have to say. Listen to what their concerns are. And I want to try to find a way to engage them even more so. I just want to start at the high school at the high school level, the four high schools, the four major high schools I have in the council district, and see what we can do there and hopefully be able to expand it in the in the coming years. And mine's are, my plans are quite similar to Kevin's. Um, I do plan to engage in all of the school districts in my uh, in my in District Eight, as well as part of my Energize Eight. One of the one of those will include a youth component because I do realize that not only are they a significant part of our demographics, but I think it's important to start. Molding and in and and kind of like shielding. I'm sorry, uh, molding the next generation, figuring out what's important to them and how can you adequately help them. And I think it's important to teach them they have a voice early versus waiting until there is an issue. I think if they understand how the role of government and everything works and interplay, you never know. I could be I could be mentoring my my future replacement on city council. You know, so it's about. It's about just making that opportunity available to them. And I, but I want, I, I think too often at that age group, they are told what people want from them. And I want to hear what they want. So that's why my listening tour is going to hear, going to listen to them, find out what they want. I want to close out by acknowledging that as much as it is an honor to represent the public on city council, there is also probably a pressure to be a council member and specifically to be a black council member. Former Councilman Mike Johnson, who represented District 8, like Keisha, told me that he would field calls from Black residents from all over the city. So what pressures are you both feeling or expecting to feel, and how do you plan to manage that? I'll go first. You know, I'm sure it's going to happen. It's going to probably happen with both of us. But I just see that as doing just doing my job. I will be doing my job, just answering questions to folks who have concerns about issues within the city who may need some help or some guidance in certain areas. So I don't feel any additional pressure. I just don't. I'm just going to go do the job that I have been elected to do, and that is to represent the residents within District 6 specifically, but in the city as a whole. 
And I hope to be able to dive into the issues, understand them as much as I possibly can, speak to as many people as I can about their concerns and their positions, and then come to a decision as to what I think is the best way to proceed. So the pressure, I don't feel it. I don't look at it that way. I know a lot of people will, but I'm going to move ahead. I am just going to, you know act from a standpoint or make decisions based on the totality of the information that is available to me and for no other reasons, you know, try to make solid decisions. I'm not as mature as Kevin. I feel a little <laughs> bit of pressure on this, mainly because um, I feel like there's always a heightened expectation when it comes to um, first or someone who looks like you and when you felt like you haven't had leadership in that position for some time. So I feel a little bit of pressure, but I feel confidence also that I have the skill sets to navigate what's going to happen. And I'm just up for the, I'm up for the challenge. <laughs> so what, what is the pressure that you feel? Um, some of the things I've seen along the campaign trail was some people don't have a realistic expectation of what is achievable on a city council role. I've heard all kinds of things along the campaign trail, like help find a pathway to citizenship. I'm like, well, that's way outside of our jurisdiction. But those types of things, but what you can do as a city council is do X, Y, and Z to help lobby and use the bully pulpit, those types of things. And when I'm talking about like a time perspective um, and getting things done is Everyone wants, I think we can all agree, everyone wants to see something happen with our homeless population, and they want it done now. And it's one of my key focuses, but it's not going to be an overnight project. I would love to be able to wake up, snap my fingers, and say it's all gone, but that's not going to be realistic. It's going to take a little bit more time and stages, and it's about helping the community and our citizens understand that as well. You know, if I could add one thing, Keisha is right. A lot of these problems that she and I will be dealing with as part of the Phoenix City Council. It's taken years for them to get to where they are at. And she is absolutely correct. It's not going to, we're not going to turn it on a dime and fix it tomorrow. It's just not going to happen as much as we would like to see it. But I think what you will get from us, and this goes to who we are, what we look like, how we have grown up, how people may treat us in the community, all of those things, they're going to get a different perspective. And I think that's important. As we sit back, try to solve the problems that are that are facing Phoenix, they're going to get a perspective. My perspective is going to be different from Keisha's. Hers is going to be different from any other member of the city council. It's because of what we look like, who we are, how we grew up, what we've been exposed to. And, and in some cases, what people's expectations have been of us. So all of the things that we have been talking about will come into us being the type of council people that we want to be based. And that's why we ran. We, we both felt that we would make a difference or could make a difference. We were talking with Keisha and Kevin because of the historical nature of two black city council members at the same time. Incredible to think that that has not happened yet in Phoenix and Keisha being the first black woman. I'm just wondering, you know, what might strike you, what you've heard from, you know, constituents or other members on city council, like just kind of like this moment we are at now. And there seems to be a sense of excitement around this. 
Yes. It was so interesting because when I asked people questions about race, I think inevitably like there is hesitation and sometimes it can get um, – there. there's just like a nervousness to discuss it. But once I sort of peeled the onion back, um, the layers back, what I heard from people, particularly black constituents, was there's just some things that black people get and I want – that I don't want to have to explain to someone. I just want to know that I can kind of give them the look or kind of imply with my tone and they'll understand. And that is what I heard also from former councilman Michael Johnson, who is saying, you know, despite the fact that he represented mostly South Phoenix, he heard from people all over. I did think it was interesting. Kevin Robinson today mentioned how the black community in Phoenix is still relatively small enough where oftentimes he'll know the black resident in his district because there is that communal feeling. And I think that to me, I immediately was transported back to my conversation with Michael Johnson, who was essentially, I think, alluding to that idea of, again, I represent South Phoenix, but people in North Phoenix, West Phoenix, East Phoenix are calling me because we're part of a community. And to me, I think that's the importance of having representation on your council is just knowing that people feel comfortable to reach out. That's such a big part of it is the council can't know what problems you're dealing with, let alone how to solve it if they don't hear from you. Mm -hmm. Both Keisha and Kevin, they just come across as very amazing individuals. And I noticed in the conversation, too, that they want to emphasize get to know us, which I do think is very fair and very key for anybody in public office. I also picked up on the theme you mentioned, which is please give us a chance. Let us be who we are. Judge us, but judge us after you get a chance to meet us and meet us in not just a one-time quick sense, not just maybe even an article, but come to us, have a conversation, hang out with us over time and then build a sense of who we are and judge that. And I think that everyone can relate to that. And I think that was, I think, the most prominent takeaway I have from that conversation. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So you had asked the council members about their plans to engage younger voters. What did you think about what they had to say? I think it's fantastic that they are going to be starting at the high school level. Obviously, I'm not in education myself, but speaking as somebody who went through the Arizona education system, I feel like that there was a big lack uh, overall, but also just not a very strong emphasis on how government works, how our state government works. I mean, I still will often ask, I call them, you know, the novice questions, like how does this work at the city council level or at the legislature level? Being able to explain that to young people and engage them, that's the key. How you do that, you'd have to talk to education experts. I'm also thinking of Sandra Day O'Connor's iCivics program. Getting people to understand their role as citizens young, I think, is so important. And I'm excited to hear these plans from both of them that they want to roll out. You know, I'm a a big fan of Schoolhouse Rock, which is even before my time, (laughs) you know, but I'm like... You have to start young. And I have talked to many young voters on this last election cycle. 
it's not always easy for them to find the information that they need, that they want. So having an open door policy, making yourself available and reaching them where they're at. We all remember what it's like to be a young person. You're either shy, uh, you don't want to speak up, or you just like, eh, I have more important things to worry about, you know. Well, and if I can, you know, if there are people listening to this episode who are younger, who are now thinking, oh, maybe I should tune into my city council meetings, maybe I should participate in my local elections, I would really encourage that. And I would also encourage them to hold Kevin Robinson and Keisha Hodge Washington accountable. We talked about they need to go to the voters and meet the young voters where they are at. In my mind, I think about the different avenues for communication, like social media, emails, newsletters. These are all things that they can do. And I will be looking to see if they actually follow through with that. And if not, It takes voters speaking at public comment, writing letters to force them to do that. Mm -hmm. Circling back on the importance of paying attention to your local government levels, the municipality, I think it's very easy in this time to see how divisive the political landscape is. That can happen on the local level, but... I tend to see less of the partisanship because we all live in this city together. Whatever your city is, it's like we we are members of this community, so we want to see this city improve and grow and be better. Well, I think to your point of you see maybe less divisiveness on council, I would agree with that. And I think that people, if they watch their council meetings, now I I will give you a warning. If you tune in for one, two, even three times, you're going to be like, whoa, what is going on? This moves fast sometimes and it won't make sense. You kind of have to hang around to get the gist of it. But I think it will give you such a renewed sense of faith in the system because not always, not always, but It is so nice to see council people actually have conversations, discuss, you see them chewing on things. And the nature of city councils getting less like national attention than state legislatures or U.S. senators and congressmen is like you might see a right-leaning or a left-leaning council member come together on issues. They don't feel necessarily like they have to always vote the party line because no one's watching them, which is sad, but... It's true. And they don't technically have the D or the R next to their name. They are technically on the ballot where you vote. They're nonpartisan. Mm -hmm. And again, it's that community. We are in this together. Both Kevin and Keisha spoke a lot about community. My biggest takeaway from all this is like, we are in this together. We are a part of this city. And it's exciting to see as somebody sitting on the outside who doesn't follow city council as much as you do, to feel the the sense of let's get this done. Let's work on the thing, whatever the thing is going to be. concludes part one of our look at Black representation on the Phoenix City Council. Next week, we'll introduce you to Dr. Morrison Warren, the first Black man to sit on the council. 
Special thanks to Keisha Hodge Washington and Kevin Robinson for sitting down with us and sharing their experiences. And thank you to Taylor Seeley for co-hosting with me today. There was so much in the conversation that we just couldn't fit into today's episode. But you can read a transcript of our full interview on azcentral.com. Just search for today's episode. And if you liked today's episode, share it with a friend. We also recommend that you hit that subscribe button on your podcasting app so you don't miss any of our episodes. If you're a fan of Valley 101, let us know. Leave us a review. And you can also nominate us for Best of the Valley. Check out our social media to find out how. You can find us at AZC Podcasts. Finally, if you have a question about the Valley, send it to us via valley101 at azcentral.com. You've been listening to Valley 101. I'm Kaylee Monahan. We'll see you next week.